Hello, we are In Conversation, a podcast from the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, designed to showcase timely and informative insights from leading faculty, searchers, and, and other experts, which impact the ever-changing social world we live in. Here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics, we recognize that the land where we are hosting this conversation at Arizona State University belong to the Maricopa and Pima peoples, and we are privileged that we can welcome you to today's conversation. Welcome, welcome everyone. My name is Aubrey Hoffer and I am your graduate student host of In Conversation with the School of Social and Family Dynamics. My incredible guest today is Dr. Annabelle Atkin. Dr. Atkin graduated from ASU with her PhD last year and is currently working as a postdoctoral fellow right here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics. When looking at her incredible work as a student, it's no surprise that we wanted to keep her. Her work is primarily focused on the experiences of multiracial youth's identity and development, as well as critical racial consciousness development. The body of work that she has already cultivated as a young scholar is as admirable as her shining attitude and personality. Annabelle, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Aubrey, for that nice introduction. <laughs> so Annabelle, the podcast starts and ends the same way. I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions. These introductory ones are just going to be icebreakers that'll get to know you a little better on a surface level. And then the ending ones will get some quick bites of your personal philosophy. The point is to just try to answer them quickly in about a sentence. How does that sound? Sounds good. All right. So question one is, Annabelle, if I could give you an unlimited spending spree at any store, where would you most want it? I think it would be Target because they have everything <laughs> you could possibly need. I am a huge Target fan, so I totally vouch for that answer. Question two is, do you prefer coffee or tea? I prefer tea. I try not to have any addictions, so I avoid drinking coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker either, so. And question three is, when you were a kid and you would sit in a classroom, where did you usually sit? Front of the class, middle, or the back? Uh, when I was a kid, all the seats were always assigned, so I didn't really have a choice, but I probably would have picked somewhere in the middle if I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. So, Annabelle, as we get into our conversation today, I found that most of the work that you're doing right now is primarily on multicultural, multiracial youth and their experiences. So was that something that you always knew you wanted to study? And how did you get into that research area? Yeah, so being multiracial myself, I think I always wanted to study multiracial experiences. But for a long time, it didn't occur to me because from kindergarten to the end of my undergraduate education, multiracial people were never mentioned. Um, I didn't even think of myself as multiracial until after I graduated from undergrad. So when I was looking for graduate school programs, it was already hard enough to find someone who studied Asian Americans, and I didn't even think to look for somebody studying multiracial people. Um, I was nervous to do research on multiracial populations because so few people are doing it. So there's a lot of foundational work to do and very few mentors to guide me. But now I've found my support network and collaborators, and I'm excited about all the work we're doing to understand multiracial experiences. And naturally, my work is inspired by real experiences from my own life or others that I read about. 
So tell me a little bit more about the foundation of the research, because it sounds like there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So what has been done already? Yeah, so I mean, if you think back the history of psychological research in general, you know that it's been primarily been done with white um, middle class populations. Um, so even just studying racial ethnic minorities and understanding their unique experiences and development is fairly recent. Um, and then when you look at multiracial populations, that's even more recent. So it was really not until maybe the 90s that people even started to study multiracial individuals and their families. Um, but that research kind of, I guess it's still really growing. It hasn't quite taken off yet. Um, a lot of, there's not a lot of multiracial scholars who stayed in the field of academia. So a lot of the foundational work has been done pe by people like Maria P.P. Root, who was a clinical psychologist. Um, Christine Ijimahal became actually an administrator at a university here in Arizona. So there just weren't a lot of people who stayed in the field. Um, so in terms of foundational work, we're talking about theories. We need to kind of guide and understand development. There are a lot of different multiracial identity development theories out there, um, but we there hasn't been a lot of research to kind of test those yet. So those are some new directions that we need to head and also understanding different kinds of processes. So for me, that's family processes that I want to explore. Well, that's something that makes me really curious is, you know, the singularity of the multiracial experience. Like, can we compare an individual who has for example, a white mom and a black dad to an individual who maybe has an Asian mom and a Latino dad? That's a really good question. So I think it's important to study unique um, multiracial people's experiences. So, but uh, I'm trying to start broad by looking at uh, what's kind of shared in common across different multiracial people. Um, because, you know, research, we need a lot of numbers. So I think that maybe by looking at some of the shared experiences is a good place to start. And then we could kind of see where those diverge and start to study specific groups and what their unique experiences are from there. That's super fascinating. What are some of those commonalities that you found? I, I would imagine it would be the thing that like comes to me at first would be maybe individual feeling sort of torn between two identities. Like I think the experience that I'm about is, you know, if someone is, uh, has, you know, white and Asian heritage, they sort of feel like maybe they're not white enough to hang out with Asian kids, but they're not Asian enough to hang out with white kids. Is that something that you found or is there something totally different? Yes, yeah, so there a lot of scholars have found that there's these experiences of monoracism. So that's discrimination against multiracial people. So kind of for not being monoracial or not fitting into monoracial boxes. So as you described, you know, not being white enough or not being Asian enough, um, that is a common experience uh, regardless, you know, relative to people's different racial backgrounds that even their own in-group members might not accept them, which you know, normally in monoracial families and monoracial groups, um, you kind of have that protection of your in-group, right? Those, those people that you can relate to who know what it's like to kind of struggle through the same maybe racial discrimination experiences as you, but multiracial people often don't have that community. Um, multiracial people are very spread out, right? So I grew up, when I was growing up, I was, <laughs> 
uh, one of the only, I was probably the only biracial Asian girl in my school, like all through, you know, primary school. I didn't have somebody I could go talk to and be like, oh, you know, this is how I'm feeling. People are treating me this way and that they could relate to me and kind of sympathize with that. If anything, it was me trying to fit in with both groups and <laughs> experience exactly what you described where, you know, neither of them really quite understood what I was going through. Right. And what were your ways of coping that? And how did that influence your own feelings about your identity? That's a good question. So I've realized a lot of people have asked me this over the last few years, and I'm kind of like, you know, I don't know how I identify myself growing up. I grew in these up in predominantly white spaces. My parents never really talked to me about race or my identity, which is what's really motivated me to study socialization, because I probably was, I mean, not, I don't, like perpetuating the stereotype of being confused, but yeah, I was confused. And um, it wasn't until I went to college where I found, you know, Asian American studies courses and an Asian American cultural center that I started to identify as Asian American. But even then I knew I was a little different from everyone else. You know, I could relate to them with about different Asian issues and experiences, but it's still, I still didn't have a lot of biracial peers. Um, and so, I mentioned that I hadn't started identifying as multiracial until after I graduated. And that's because at that point was when I met other biracial Asian people and had this group of friends. And so I knew that was, you know, this unique experience that we shared and a unique identity that we shared too. That's fantastic. I think that really speaks to the importance of having a support system and, you know, having people around you who have a similar lived experience to you. I guess that makes me feel a little more optimistic for maybe younger multiracial youth because with things like the internet and social media, I'd imagine that now it's probably easier to get connected to youth who have those similar experiences. Yes, definitely. So, you know, I mentioned that my research is inspired by my experiences and those of others. And by others, I mean that I'm in all of these groups now, like on Facebook, where all these multiracial people from all over the world are just talking to each other about their experiences. And though they do share, you know, similar experiences being isolated where they are, they have these online communities where they can talk to one another. And, you know, just in recent years, there is just this boom of multiracial actors and representation in the media. And while they aren't always kind of cast as these multiracial characters, you know, those of us who are multiracial, you know, like me, I'll always go look up that person and learn about their background. And it just at least makes me excited to see that they're being represented. And I hope that in the future we'll have more like multiracial families actually in the characters that are on TV too. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because um, for anyone who maybe isn't seeing what I look like. I'm a white woman, um, but my partner is Filipina. And every time we see um, an actress or an actor on TV and we're like, interesting, I wonder what's going on there. And we look them up and we see that they're white and Filipino. We always get so excited and we always sort of joke, our kid is going to be hot because this actor is white and Filipino and they're hot. So clearly we're gonna have hot kids, which, you know, don't quote me on that in, you know, 20 years, my kid is, has a great personality, but that's sort of just the joke between uh, my 
boyfriend and I right now. And to be able to see that representation is really cool. Um, we also joke anytime we see um, like a multi-race couple on TV, we just sort of point at it and look, it's us. Um, and it's it's endearing. I mean, it's it's a joke between us, but it really does make me feel happy. And I hope that one day I'll be able to see a rom-com that has, you know, a white female lead and then, you know, a dark-skinned Asian, uh, like romantic partner. That would just fill me with so much joy because I feel like I would finally get to see you know, my love story on TV. And I hope that that's something everyone can experience. Yeah, definitely. And we know representation is important and being able to see ourselves um, makes us feel a sense of belonging. Is there any media that you've consumed where you've had that shared experience of like, oh my God, that's me. Um, or you just felt really, you're proud to see that depiction? Hmm, I'm trying to think if there's... <laughs> I mean, so it's just interesting how these families are portrayed and the actors that are chosen. So in the, the film on Netflix, that's very popular to all the boys I've loved, it's actually supposed to be a mixed race family. So the father is white and he's played by a white man and the mother, she's passed away, but she's Asian. And there's three daughters, but the main character is actually a mono-racial Asian actress. She's a transracial adoptee. so that actually, you know, they have a lot of shared experiences with multiracial people, um, but she herself is monoracial Asian, which, you know, it's just interesting, like kind of how did they make that decision and why, but her two sisters are actually biracial Asian actresses. So they're kind of fit true to the role. Yeah, cool. So I wanna switch gears a little bit. Um, this has been a great conversation just talking about your lived experiences and sort of what got you into your work. But I wanna talk about your work specifically now. So I understand that you've worked on something called the Multiracial Youth Civilization Scale. Can you describe that to me? Yes, so like I said, I wanna study family processes. So how are parents talking to their children about race, about their identities, about what's going on in society? And so I did a couple of studies. I started with interviews with 20 multiracial college students who are of a diverse backgrounds. So some of them were biracial, some of them were multiracial, some of them had a white parent, some of them were dual minority biracials. And I just asked them like, how did your parents talk to you about these different things, um, discrimination, identity, culture, right? And out of that, you know, kind of based on what I found there, I developed a scale so that quantitative researchers could also study this using surveys. Um, so in this scale, I had eight subscales. So kind of eight different topics that parents might talk to their children about that came out of those interviews. Um, and an example of that, so we have a multiracial identity socialization subscale. And one of the items is like my parent encouraged me to explore what it means to be multiracial. Um, for silent socialization, that would be like if your parents did not talk about race at all. So an example of that would be my parent never talks about race because we know that that's a reality too. And we would want to see what that kind of relates to um, in terms of outcomes for you. That is so fascinating. So is that what you're using in the current study that you're working on where you're surveying parents and their multiracial adolescents uh, to help understand their racial attitudes and sort of the ways that racial families are communicating about racial justice? 
Yes, precisely. So several of the subscales are kind of unique in the socialization literature in that they're not talking about the youth and their own experiences, but about race and society at large. So there's a colorblind socialization subscale, which is like parents teaching you that, you know, race doesn't matter. So this also often happens in multiracial families where parents might be like, oh, you know, we overcame color, we overcame race, and we just love each other as human beings, which is a nice message. But if you're pairing that with not talking about the realities of racism and discrimination and the realities that those two parents have very different lived experiences due to their skin color, that can be problematic. So I have other subscales. So one is a race conscious socialization subscale, which is are your parents talking to you about um, the history of racism in the United States, how systemic racism functions. And in this new study, I wanted to see how do those conversations relate to parents racial attitudes and children's racial attitudes. So are parents who have, you know, a more colorblind outlook on life, just on race in general, are they less likely to talk their children? about systemic racism and are their children in turn less likely to be aware of racism in society. Um, and then I also wanted to see how actual action, so engagement and activism was related to all of that. So if you see your parents going to protests, you know, are you going to be more likely to engage in racial justice activism yourself? And you know, is that also related to talking about these issues at home? Right. That's so fascinating. So it sounds like when we think about how like multiracial parents are or how parents are talking about race to their multiracial youth, it seems like there's maybe one side or the other where parents are either just closing their eyes and ears and being like, we live in a colorblind world, everything is fine, like don't worry about it. Or parents are more engaged and actually talking to their kids and, you know, explaining to them some of the realities of life, right? Like, you know, that there are these systematic things that you're going to have to probably face in your lifetime. And some things might be easier or harder because of your multiracial identity and stuff like that. Is that sort of right? Or is there maybe a third group? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. And then there's just some parents who don't talk about it at all. So that's kind of like the silent socialization group where they just avoid talking about race, period. Um, I also have another, so another subscale is the diversity appreciation. So it's teaching your child to respect people of different cultures, but you can do that in a sort of, like in a way without talking about racism, right? So you can kind of say, oh, like these different cultures are so great and take your kids to travel around the world. But if you're not talking about inequality, then you're, you know, that's important that you're still teaching them to respect other cultures, but you're still lacking that, you know, that power dynamic and teaching them about inequities. Right. And that's something that's really important to tell kids about. Obviously, if you're saying like, that's great to, you know, love and respect other cultures, but you're not actually saying anything about these you know, power existed for a long time. And, you know, the role that we as individuals play in potentially perpetuating those power dynamics, it's sort of, uh, I don't want to say it's meaningless, but it just doesn't quite have an impact, right? Mm -hmm. Right. 
So I'm interested because you said that you're going to be doing a follow-up project um, in addition to this current project you're working on, where you're going to be observing parents and their multiracial children having a conversation about their racial experiences and racial issues in society. Do you think that that you know children or parents that the conversation will be different talking about their individual experiences versus you know society at large or do you think there will be some consistency there yeah um i think that's an interesting question um i think that some you know if you are more aware of so Part of the reason it's important to talk about systemic racism is it helps you to interpret your own experiences, right? So if you are experiencing discrimination, you know, one way you might internalize that is to kind of blame yourself. Like there's something wrong with me, you know, I don't belong, you know, I need to change and not realizing that this is something tied to history and oppression that is widespread, right? Like having that framework helps you to interpret and cope with your own experiences. And so I think that people might recognize that their own, having their own discrimination experiences and children could talk about that, but are they able to situate it within this broader framework and this broader you know, narrative and history of racism in the United States? Um, that's a skill that they kind of need to develop. And I think some may be able to do that and some may not. Right. Yeah, your work is just so interesting, Annabelle. Like, it, it really is. And I'm so excited to sort of follow your career with everything you're doing. Um, I think I would be as interested in your work if I, you know, was not a white woman expecting to have a multiracial family one day. But because I am, it just, your work just hits so much harder for me. And because it's something that I think about, right? Like, you know, I love my partner very much. One day we want to have a family and it's it's on my mind, right? Like my kids will be racial. How do I um, navigate that as a white woman who has experienced a lot of privilege in my life, right? And there's a lot of experiences that I simply don't know about. I'm curious, you know, hearing the sort of anxiety coming out of me right now, what advice would you give to, you know, other white parents who might be feeling that way? Like, um, you know, how do we foster these like positive multiracial identities? What can we as white parents do with sort of our privilege and our background to help our children? Yeah, thanks for that question. So there's a lot of things. Um, First, you know, you want to instill pride in who they are. So sharing culture, of course, is important. And I know, you know, a lot of white families, it might feel like, oh, you know, we're so distant from a specific, you know, ethnic group. We don't feel that we have a particular culture. Um, but you can also share, you know, get involved in learning about your partner's culture and teach that to your children, right? So I think there is this assumption that it's the parent whose culture it is to teach it to their child. But I think I've learned from my research from talking to multiracial people that when their parents get involved in each other's cultures and work together to share that, that's really meaningful to them. So for example, if you were to learn how to cook Filipino dishes and cook them for your children, you know, that would be meaningful to them. It shows that you value their culture, right? It's not just their Filipino father who values it, but that you value it too, right? Um, then there's also, you know, they may not want to identify as multiracial, which is fine, but 
you know, you want to give them validating messages about all of their different identities and emphasize that they don't have to pick a particular identity um, and that they should be proud of all of their different aspects of their identity, no matter which one they feel that they gravitate more towards. Um, and then I would say if you're feeling, you know, concerned that they're not identifying with a certain group for negative reasons, right? So, you know, they may kind of reject, you know, kids learn. They, they, they know that certain groups are devalued in society. And so in this case, you know, their racial ethnic minority group might be devalued and they might be embarrassed to kind of identify with that. And so if you are think, worried about that, then they might have internalized racism where they're kind of hating themselves because uh, they're internalizing these stereotypes and negative ideas about their racial group. You want to try and talk to them about that, right? And show them that there are positives. And again, you know, talk to them about um, racism and history and society so that they understand why you know, these groups are devalued and why they, they shouldn't be. And that's problematic. That was possibly the best answer you could have given, Annabelle. That was amazing. Anyone listening should be taking notes on that. So uh, thank you. That was an incredibly thoughtful response. Um, yeah, I, what resonates with me about what you said is I just being willing to have conversations and also too, like for white parents and I guess just white people in general, right? Being willing to be uncomfortable, right? Because it's sort of an uncomfortable thing to admit that, you know, I do have this privilege in society and there are ways in my life that I have benefited from that. But understanding that, you know, that doesn't mean you're like a bad person or anything. That's just like the way our society developed and all we can do to move forward is try to do things to correct that. And, you know, I don't know. I'm, I feel very hippy dippy saying, let's come from a place of love as we try to, you know, correct systematic oppression. But I think that, you know, we obviously need the activism and to put in the work, but also, you know, treating others with compassion doesn't hurt anybody either and instilling those messages to our youth. So. Yeah. And there's actually something, you know, that you've been saying throughout this conversation that is really important modeling and will be for your child. And it's you acknowledging that you have privilege. And people don't talk this about this much with multiracial, with raising multiracial children, but if they do have a white parent, you also actually have to talk to them about privilege because in being part white, they have privilege. Um, they might be lighter skinned than their racial ethnic minority peers. Um, they might have certain, you know, more European features that are pri prized by society, right? And, you know, even though they are minorities, so you know every multiracial person is a racial ethnic minority, they also have a degree of privilege that might be difficult to talk about, but it's important for them to recognize. And you know, by acknowledging your own privilege and kind of talking to them about the advantages that they have, that will be important for them too. Right. I think that was beautifully said, Annabelle. So I wanted to sort of transition us towards the end of our conversation. But before I do, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Anything that you would like listeners to know about you or the work you do or anything like that? Yeah, sure. Um, so if you're interested in more resources, I do have a Facebook page called the Multiracial Families Project. And I just try to share anything there that I come across that might be for helping parents generally, 
might be for helping parents raise multiracial children specifically. Um, and I'll be advertising my future studies there, including the one about anti-racism engagement and socialization. So keep an eye out for that. That's awesome. We will have all of the information leading to that in our show notes. And if you're watching this on YouTube, we'll probably put up a nice little slide here with all of that information. So as we transition to the end of the podcast, I wanted to ask you our big three questions at the end. So these questions are going to be a little deeper and feel free to elaborate on them a little bit if you'd like to. And it's really just for us to get a better picture of who you are, what you believe in, and all that good stuff. Are you ready? Yes. So question number one is, what does success mean to you? I would say success means happiness. So it means, you know, we tend to think of success in terms of our career success. Um, but I've learned recently that it means letting go of your ego and of what society values, such as, you know, for me, the number of publications you have or the prestige of the school that you work at. Um, but instead working hard for your family and what you believe in and your happiness. You know, my work makes me happy because I hope that it's helping multiracial families. And, you know, those families maybe don't necessarily care about how many publications that I have or <laughs> what school I work at. You know, what's more important is that work's getting out there um, and that I have, you know, balance in my life. I think that by that measure of success, Annabelle, you have already surpassed all expectations. So I think that was a great answer. So question number two is, what is the best decision that you made while you were in grad school? Uh, I would say the best decision I made was to really put myself out there. So to meet new people. Um, I reached out to senior scholars, to peers, to undergraduate students. And now those people are my mentors, my close friends, and my mentees, respectively. I love that. Um, I think that's great advice for anyone listening, whether you're undergrad or even faculty, is don't be afraid to reach out to collaborators. So question number three, and our final question is, what is one rule you want everyone to follow? Um, I would say always work to maintain balance in your life. So, you know, take time to do your work, but also take time to take care of yourself and your body through, you know, exercise and take care of your mind. So relax, talk to your fan, friends and family. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's advice everybody can stand to listen to. So Annabelle, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being with me today. This conversation was incredibly enlightening and it's been such a pleasure to hear about your life and your work. And I hope to have you back again when some of these other projects you're working on are finished. Thank you, Aubrey, for all your thoughtful questions. I really enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> all right, bye everyone. Thank you so much. If you would like to connect with today's podcast guest, please email the following. For Aubrey Hoffer, email alhoffer at asu.edu. For Annabelle Atkin, email annabelle.atkin at asu.edu. And be sure to visit and like Dr. Atkin's Facebook page, Multiracial Families Project. This community is a place where parents can talk to one another about their experiences raising multiracial children. 
Connect with us and get access to all of our podcasts by visiting thesanfordschool.asu.edu forward slash podcast, where you will also find links to all of our social media channels. This conversation has come to an end, but our work here continues. <laughs>